0: everyone and welcome to Oscar Wilde, a podcast about film always counting down to this year's Oscars. I'm Sophia Simonello
1: and I'm Nick Ruckraut.
0: And today we have our first installment in our Oscar Contender series for this year. We will be discussing four categories: visual effects, production design, original score and original song. How do you feel about starting our contender series over again with a new crop of nominees?
1: I'm excited. I kind of said the last time it helps me look at them a little bit deeper and to really break down like why maybe something's going to win or what it should win for. And going through interviews and looking at articles for certain aspects of, say, visual effects was really cool. Like hearing about how they send different shots to different companies to work on different parts. And I think hearing about more of that gives me more of a respect for every category and every aspect of filmmaking, which is really what the Oscars comes down to, is finding appreciation for these movies and the people nominated.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I know you and I have always been advocates of the Oscars presenting every category on the telecast. They're all important. Even if you might not like some of these movies, we're not reviewing Mm -hmm. these films today. This is different. We are like going... Very, very granular here looking just at the nominee and what the work meant for that movie. So I'm excited to dig in, especially because I think often when I think of the Oscars, we think, you know, I think of those bigger categories like picture, like acting, even things like international feature. But I think it'll be fun going deeper into these nominees and seeing why they were recognized.
1: Yeah, and I think with the technical categories is really where we get into the nitty-gritty, and I'm glad we're starting here, so I guess we could get right into it with visual effects. So this year's nominees are Dune, Free Guy, No Time to Die, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings, and Spider-Man No Way Home.
0: And for this category, the guild that we can look at is the Visual Effects Society, or VES, Their nominations were already announced, but their ceremony with the winners will be on March 8th, so keep an eye on that. But last year, VES and Oscar didn't really match. So Tenet was our Oscar winner, Academy Award winner, Tenet, (laughs) (laughs) which we were happy about. But the Guild, they went for the Midnight Sky in their photoreal feature category, and then they actually have a bunch of categories that you can look at, and Soul the Pixar film won five. Tenant didn't win a single award from the Guild, but I think it might look a little different this year. So we'll get to that when we get to our predictions. But Mm -hmm. this year at the Guild, Dune was far and away the leader. I'll let you start talking about Dune since I know it was your favorite movie of the year.
1: I think what's interesting too is what you were saying about Soul these guild members choose the nominees for the Oscars. That's what we experienced for nominations and what we were trying to figure out. And Soul wasn't a nominee last year. So that, you know, there's always some sort of a disconnect in certain categories. But yes, Dune is my favorite movie of 2021. Go listen to our Dune episode that we did a while back um, where we break down the movie. So with the team here, we have Paul Lambert, who has two wins for First Man and Blade Runner 2049. Tristan Miles was also a winner for First Man. Brian Connor, this is his first nomination, and Gerd Nefser, who also won for Blade Runner 2049. I think why I love Dune so much, it's, it's a visual movie. That's what it's known to be. And when you think about these big blockbusters or sci-fi movies, it can be really in your face. And I don't think Dune was that way. They created this world, they lived in it, they shot on location, which we'll get to in production design, and they wanted it to look and feel as real as it could. They used sand screens instead of like green or blue screens to help with the color matching. You know, when people create effects or certain techniques for movies, I think that's amazing, We talked about this recently with It's a Wonderful Life, when they created this silent snow because they wanted to use the real thing. So things like that are amazing. Um, The ornithopters were also real, like they made two versions. There was a 75 and a 48 foot version and they shipped them to Jordan so that they can use them on location on set. And there are a lot of internal worlds, a lot of exterior shots in Dune. So I think they do a good mix. And then other visual effects elements here, we have the body shields.
0: Which make Timmy look like he can actually fight. (laughs) It's an important visual effect. (laughs) It worked,
1: yeah. I'm glad it worked for you. (laughs) There's a lot of stuff going on with the sand, either Mm -hmm. when they're flying or the sandworms itself. Like that is, I guess, the biggest visual effect here and making that look as real as possible. And then with the Baron Harkonnen and his suspensors, there are a lot of individual elements here. And I think that's why Dune is the front runner. What is your favorite visual effect from Dune?
0: On a past episode one time, you said like that you have trouble sometimes in movies when the characters are like too real or it's too much like everyday life. And I'm the opposite. A lot of these movies were really challenging for me because I just don't I don't like being suspended from reality in a visual effect CGI type of way. It's not the experience I'm looking for when I go to the movies, but I had no problems with the visual effects in Dune at all because I think that they are much more grounded and realistic. Like, you do feel like you're in this world. The lighting on the characters actually matches what would happen if these things these events were happening around them and that's really cool that's not something that you see in a movie like a marvel movie where they're shooting it all on sound stages they want their faces to look perfect but yeah i just think it's really cool i like how all the characters are often included in the shots and when i was researching this movie and like hearing from the visual effects team and the production design team as well the thing that they were most nervous about was actually the sand because The sand is everywhere in the movie. We see the sand quite often. And when you have the ornithopters, for instance, I liked learning that they shot helicopters taking off and landing so you could see how the wind and the sand would blow. And then the team, they used that footage to inform their visual effects Mm -hmm. design of the sand. I also love the sand displacement with the worms, even though I, I personally hate looking at the worms I liked that effect. I thought that was really cool. I learned that they placed a metal plate under the sand and that would vibrate. And then the VFX artists, they matched this effect. So a lot of it was shot really practically. And I think that you can see that in this movie. It feels like they're things that these characters are actually experiencing. So to go back to your original question, because I just rambled, definitely the sand displacement with the worms. That was really scary in the movie. Mm -hmm. Like seeing it kind of ripple like that yeah. and you know something's mm-hmm. underneath about to come up.
1: Yeah, And how at different lengths from land or from the sand, it rippled differently. So I, mm-hmm. I love that. My other like one time thing that happened is when the ship floats out of the water and you mm-hmm. have this bird's eye shot of the ocean. I thought that was so beautiful. So even smaller things like that.
0: I also really love how when... The I'm blanking on the name of what this would be called right now, but the ship that the Bene Gesserit come in on, you know what I'm that talking too. about? Yeah. When they arrive and it's so dark and you can you're almost blinded by those lights and you mm-hmm. can't really make out the details. I love that because that's exactly how it would look to you if you were waiting for these women to come in if you were watching them like that's what you would see it wouldn't be you wouldn't see all these up close details of their costumes or their faces which is I think what we get in a lot of sci-fi movies the lighting is just all wrong
1: I still crack up when they leave in the ship and lady Jessica is standing there and she's getting like whipped by the rain and yeah. the wind <laughs> But yes, so memorable.
0: I think it's important to remember that we watch all of these movies when we do these contenders episodes. And yes, we watch Free Guy. This is our next nominee. (laughs) Our team here we have Sven Gilberg. This is his second nomination. We also have Brian Grill. This is his third nomination. Nikos Kaladzidis. This is his first nomination. And Dan Sudik. This is his 11th nomination. This movie, I think the visual effects here, to me, after seeing this, it was very clear like why it was nominated because it is a unique concept and I did like the concept of the movie, but looking at the like video game world that is created, it is pretty cool how it feels very influenced by a lot of different video games. It incorporates 1300 VFX shots. This style of visual effects isn't my cup of tea compared to dune but i did think they were doing pretty like cool things with animation and with the graphics here what did you think of free guy and more specifically i guess the vfx in the movie
1: i think as a movie it was about what i expected it was you know action packed lots of visual effects going on but i think the nomination makes sense like i didn't mm-hmm. expect it to show up here but every single minute There are so many visual effects going on. Mm -hmm. And I think they were well done. I really liked the look of it and what they were doing. So they were joining all of these worlds, everything from video games like Grand Theft Auto and Fortnite to action movies, other Marvel movies. They have a Marvel reference in here, Star Wars. So I think the way they layered not only the world, but having to see this world From inside a game and then from outside the game in the movie, Mm -hmm. I think it was pretty cool.
0: What was the moment in the movie that you thought best showcased the visual effects?
1: When he first puts on the glasses and you start to see all of these things floating that aren't there. And then he takes the glasses on and off. I think that was maybe the first moment. Another really big scene that they have is when they're driving and this world is collapsing on them. Mm Mm-hmm. And then later on when he's running on this bridge and like the world again is collapsing and the pixels are like being erased. I think those are the moments when there's the most going on.
0: I really liked the glasses too, but I also think one of the funniest things that I learned about this movie and I was very curious about when I watched it. So this team, they created about 50 new characters in the movie, like in the game. And when they were working with Ryan Reynolds in the studio he actually brought in one of his and Blake Lively's daughters and they actually made her a character in the movie (laughs) they like motion captured her so you'll see there's like a little girl crossing the street that he saves from a big truck that's Mm -hmm. actually his daughter oh wow and then Blake Lively is in it too (laughs) Because since they shot it during COVID, Ryan Reynolds sent a video of Blake Lively in so they could like mimic her (laughs) movements and she is in the movie too.
1: Oh my gosh.
0: So yeah, so I thought that was fun. It just feels like it would have been a really fun movie to work on.
1: Mm -hmm. Definitely. I mean, you have Jodie Comer and Ryan Reynolds like riding a motorcycle out of a building, like obviously that's CGI, but Mm -hmm. like all of the moments between them are cute. And then you have Channing Tatum showing up and Taika Waititi playing this evil boss. Yeah, when Ryan Reynolds is acting and producing a movie, I think you're bound to have a good time.
0: Let's move on to No Time to Die. Another one of your favorite movies from the year.
1: Yeah, I think another movie that uses visual effects really well and almost subtly. The team here, we have Charlie Noble. This is his first nomination. Also, Joel Green's first nomination, Jonathan Faulkner, this is his third nomination, and Chris Korbold, who has won previously for Inception, another amazing winner in this category. So what did you like from No Time to Die?
0: Well, I really loved the movie. I think it's so action-packed, and I do think that the visual effects are used really creatively, especially with some major set pieces that we have. We have that gorgeous Aston Martin, the DB5, which has been like, really important to the team throughout. I mean, Aston Martin, that's an iconic brand and, I think, prop, I would say, that's associated with Bond. Um, we also have the trawler, which is that underwater scene with Felix. I thought that was a great use of visual effects there, and I also thought that the island at the end with Rami Malek used visual effects very creatively too, and I think through all of these, what I really liked was that this team, I think, really connected the visual effects to the emotions that were happening with the characters and also with the audience. So each of these things that I mentioned, they're at key points in the film, and they all have this... Like core connection, I think, to it being Daniel Craig's last Bond film. That was something that I really liked. What about you?
1: Something I liked researching about this category is that the VFX houses put out videos that I would expect to see at a bake-off. It's like a two and a half minute YouTube video where they showcase certain things and the layering they do to achieve the visual effects. So I, I like seeing the breakdown and there's one from here. So even really slight, like when Anadarmis is fighting in the club and shooting, like there are things going on, I think with her body, it looked like her dress. I really also liked the island at the end, like when you see the garden opening, it's like kind of hard thinking about visual effects because it feels like a Tom Cruise kind of thing where they're doing a lot of these action sequences themselves or with mm-hmm. stunt people. But I think the car you know when that gets shot up in the street and they drive away I think Mm -hmm. that's another great scene
0: I agree and for those Aston Martins and they had eight replicas of those that they could use I also thought it was interesting because that scene in particular they shot it in this town called Matera and you see all this like stunning old architecture around them these beautiful buildings you're like how does (laughs) how are they speeding through this right Mm mm-hmm But they were very careful to protect all of the architecture of the town. So then they had to go back in and recreate and add on to the existing buildings with visual effect. So the town was completely safe. They protected it. And then they just went back in later and (laughs) added to it visually.
1: And what I also love about the Bond movies is, at least for the Daniel Craig versions, is when they go to... Q, played by Ben Wishaw, who like just gives him all of these little trinkets to play with. So those are another good source of visual effects.
0: Let's move on to our next nominee, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. This was my favorite Marvel movie of the year. Our team here, we have Christopher Townsend. This is his third nomination. Joe Farrell. This is his second nomination. Sean Noel Walker. This is his first nomination. And Dan Oliver. This is his second nomination. What did you think of Shang-Chi? I know that you watched this recently, um, but more specifically, I think the visual effects in the movie.
1: So I liked Shang-Chi. I think it's my third favorite Marvel movie ever. Oh, wow. And I think this year, only second to Spider-Man No Way Home.
0: And Black Panther's your number one? Yeah. That's so interesting. Ryan's <laughs> going to have some thoughts, I'm sure. <laughs>
1: I think something you always talk about with nomination predicting and you had recently in expecting Godzilla versus Kong to get in is mm-hmm. CGI animals or monsters. Yep. And I think this is where that nomination comes in because the mm-hmm. dragons at the end are like the biggest element Yeah. besides the 10 rings, which was interesting reading about because the way different actors manipulate the rings, they wanted to make them move differently. So I think those two things for me were the best. That whole final sequence where you have the dragon coming out of the water and all of these little bats. I don't know what they are, but they're coming out of like the demon hole.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs>
1: <laughs> this is how much I know like the MCU world No, I know. <laughs> me too.
0: It's, it's not great.
1: But when they're fighting all of those... And the dragons are eating them. I think that's the scene we're going to see at the Oscars.
0: I agree. I do always bring that up about talking animals. It is like my my <laughs> tried and true thing. Last year we saw the one and only Ivan. This year yes. we have Shang-Chi. <laughs> and I know that we don't talk about Marvel movies a lot on our show. But what I really loved is the kind of magical quality here in this movie. It doesn't feel just like a comic book movie with... A lot of action characters flying fighting trying to save the world it feels much more like it's grounded in a really unique story and a new tradition and I really liked that about this movie the one thing I read about visual effects that I thought was really cool is that they wanted to visually represent all of the chakras in the body this is me being like very hippy dippy as I can get sometimes but <laughs> I thought that was really neat going with like different colors for different chakras and how they would depict the soul itself. I thought that was very neat visually that they did
1: that. I think this is one of my favorite Marvel movies is because they talk about traditions and the Chinese culture so well and they mix that with the story I think better than they have before. So our last nominee is Spider-Man No Way Home. The team here, Kelly Port, this is his second nomination. Chris Wagner and Scott Edelstein, this is both of their first nominations, and Dan Sudik, this is his 12th nomination, and we mentioned him previously on Free Guys, so he is a double nominee this year. Very cool. So Spider-Man No Way Home, I love the visual effects, I think was probably the first thing I said coming out of the movie theater. You're probably going to say, like, this is doing the most with visual effects. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. But I think it works because they're trying to meld all of these different worlds together. They're bringing together different Spider-Man universes. And I always like the aerial shots of Spider-Man flying. So I think a lot of what they're doing here is pretty standard Marvel fare. But there's a lot. So this nomination makes sense to me.
0: Yeah. And I I know we're not reviewing the movie, but I will just say, since we haven't talked about it on the show, with the exception of just, like, the buzz for best picture around it that was going around and everything with PGA and its box office domination, I enjoyed my time watching this movie, and I think that's because sometimes I find that Marvel movies are way too self-referential and you have to know everything that's going on in the world to really care about what's happening. But here... I grew up watching the Spider-Man movies. I love the Sam Raimi movies, and I loved the sense of nostalgia here, bringing back the villains. I think, you know, this movie, like you said, it has the most visual effects, 2,500 VFX shots. Like, It has a lot going on, Mm
1: -hmm. but
0: I do think, you know, the team, their biggest challenge here was trying to keep a consistent look between... ...all of the past Spider-Man films. And that's hard because those original films, they don't look like films in the MCU. Even the Andrew Garfield movies don't have the same look to them. So they used a couple of different companies for help with this. Digital Domain 3.0, Sony Pictures Imageworks, and Luma Pictures... They even applied a de-aging technique for Alfred Molina and Willem Dafoe, which I thought was interesting to try to get that look right that they had in those existing movies, Spider-Man and Spider-Man 2. That was, I think, the most successful thing in the movie for me and why ultimately it worked better for me than most of the Marvel movies I've seen recently. Which visual effect element did you like best?
1: I think one was when Doctor Strange was trying to capture the Sandman. That was pretty cool. Different sand usage compared to Dune.
0: (laughs) You love all of the sand.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I think the star, though, is Doc Ock. I loved that scene on the bridge Mm -hmm. with Tom not only flying around and trying to avoid him, but the use of the appendages, the nanotechnology, and kind of making a Doc Ock 2.0. I thought that was really cool. That was my favorite.
0: I thought that was really cool too. I mean, I loved anything with the Green Goblin is for me. Anything with Willem Dafoe in that Mm -hmm. role, I loved him in this movie.
1: I'd still be okay with a Willem Dafoe nomination for Supporting Actor.
0: I can say right now, I think he's better than at least two or three of our current nominees. So (laughs) that's all I'll say there. (laughs) So on these Contenders episodes, what we will do for each category, we will say what our write-in vote would be, who we think should win, and who we think will win. So what is your write-in vote?
1: It'd have to be the Matrix Resurrections, just because you immediately think of visual effects. It's not an inspired pick. What would yours be?
0: Mine would definitely be the visual effects for The Tragedy of Macbeth. We talked about this on our episode on the Tragedy of Macbeth. I just think the way that they use visual effects in the movies is incredibly creative, especially with the witches. And mm-hmm. I was really sad when this movie wasn't on the shortlist because it mm-hmm. belonged there.
1: And who do you think should win?
0: I think that Dune should win. I think that the visual effects are just phenomenal in the movie. And just reading about this team and all of the creative choices that they made here. I just think that they're really bold and very grounded in reality and that's something that I really appreciate. What about you?
1: Definitely Dune. It's no surprise.
0: <laughs> and who do you think will win?
1: I think out of all of Dune's 10 chances to win, this is its best. So, I think it's pretty safe to say Dune will be my next tenant, my next Academy winning Dune. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Yeah. If Dune doesn't go home with at least one Oscar, I will be really surprised. I also think that Dune (laughs) is going to win here. It just feels like a slam dunk and Mm -hmm. a pretty easy prediction.
1: And they usually go for best picture or at least Mm -hmm. best picture adjacent movies. Nothing super showy. I'm not sure a Marvel movie has won here yet. Mm -mm. So Dune is definitely the safe choice also.
0: Right and I know that people in the past and us included we've compared Dune to Mad Max Fury Road and that famously did not win visual effects even though people were predicting it. Ex Machina won that year which is still one of the coolest wins I think in Mm -hmm. category history but I don't think we have a nominee here like that that's this like Mm -hmm. kind of cool indie with a lot of hidden support so I feel like Dune is pretty safe. And worth mentioning with these categories we'll talk about today, even though the nominees were chosen by craftspeople in the branch, the entire body can vote on visual effects, which gives the edge to Dune.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: Next up we have production design. Our nominees are Dune, Nightmare Alley, The Power of the Dog, The Tragedy of Macbeth, and West Side Story.
1: So we look at two guilds here, One is the Set Decorator Society of America, which has their ceremony on February 22nd, and the Art Directors Guild, which is on March 5th. So also keep an eye out for those. The SDSA is coming up really soon. So I think once we start to see these winners, if what we don't say doesn't align today, we can be like, okay, wait, maybe we should change.
0: So our first nominee here is Dune. The team we have... Patrice Vermette as the production designer. This is his third nomination. And for set decoration, we have Susanna Sepos. this is her first nomination. I think that the first thing that I really love about the production design in Dune is that there are so many contrasting worlds that are essential to understanding what's going on for these characters, and also this central theme of colonization that's taking place. You have colonialism running as this thread throughout the book, and I think that our production design team really brought that into the movie well. What did you like best about the production design, or did you have a specific set that was your favorite?
1: I think what's really cool about what they did here is that they shot on location, like we mentioned, they were in Mm -hmm. Abu Dhabi and Jordan, and they wanted to think like Fremen in constructing these sets. They were like, there's not going to be a city in the middle of the desert. Mm -hmm. So they built it into the side of a mountain instead, where it would be shielded from the wind, from these sandstorms. So they were really conscious of building in an adaptive way to the environment. So I thought that was really cool. So I think with that, that would be my favorite set is when we get to Arrakis and we see this city. We have this like huge tracking shot over the city. And then once we get inside, it feels minimalist and kind of secretive. But I like how these spaces are so open and so vast. And there's like a sterileness to it. But that's also maybe how we would see like the year 10,000 houses looking then.
0: Yeah. One thing that I think is like crucial to this is that they use the book as a foundation here. I think that's really evident as, I mean, I'm sure you felt the same way, like reading the book and then seeing the movie. When you have like fans of a book like this, there is a certain amount of pressure, I think, on the creators to live up to certain things that the readers have imagined. And I think that they did that here. I think one thing about Arakin, the city in Arrakis, that I thought was really cool, they created these mood boards, and they looked at different types of architecture, um, like Soviet and Brazilian brutalist architectures. They looked at marble mines. They looked at World War II bunkers. So they looked at a lot of different styles of this very harsh, like you use the word sterile, Architecture, And I think you can really see that. And I think that works really well with what they're trying to convey in this environment. My favorite place in the movie, I think my favorite set is actually Caledon. I thought that that was just beautiful. I really love like blues and greens and grays. But what I thought was interesting was that, and this maybe says something about me, but the production designer, he said that in talking with Denis Villeneuve, they wanted to convey a sense of autumn melancholia. <laughs> so they wanted it to look kind of misty and overcast on the coast I was like of course I like that that totally fits with my personality <laughs> and why I would want to live there
1: I saw a quote and they said here in Canada our favorite season is fall and that's what they made it look like on Caledon. <laughs> yeah.
0: I love that it's perfect I also I think if I had to pick another one I really love the scene with the Bar and Mm -hmm. that room that Timmy and Charlotte Rampling are in is, I think, it's really well designed, very dark. I loved that.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think we can include props here too, and the box Mm -hmm. totally fits. There's a great video I think I referenced on our Dune episode when Denis just talks about this scene for 15 minutes and breaking it down, and they talk about how they want to the box to be a real thing. They wanted this eerie feel to come across, and I think that totally works. Next up, we have Nightmare Alley. The production designer is Tamara Deverell. This is her first nomination, and the set decorator is Shane Vio, also his first nomination. So we spoke with Tamara recently, and we talked to her all about the production design the art deco of it, all the carnival scenes. She had a lot of insight and was really cool talking to her about the inspirations behind the film too.
0: Definitely check out our interview with Tamara. I was so excited to see her get her first nomination. She's wonderful and had so much insight into this movie. And I think it's just a really fun world to live in, both the carnival and this Art Deco Buffalo. So definitely go back and check out that interview where she like goes into detail about all of that. Did you have a favorite set in particular from Nightmare Alley?
1: I would just say the Carnival, because there's so much going on. It's such an immersive set. It's so well designed. Like There's a lot, but it's also not overwhelming. Mm-hmm. So you have all of these period props. You have the Ferris wheel, you have the carousel, you have all of these different stands and tents. So I think that was just the most fun set to be in. Mm -hmm. What was yours?
0: I really liked Lilith's office. This is the Kate Blanchett character. I thought it was just stunning. I love the reflective floors. I love the ceilings, her desk. I think you really just feel that Tamara had such a good understanding of who this character was, and when you see her in that room, I think it really is just an extension of that character. So I would definitely pick that one. Next up we have The Power of the Dog. Our team here, we have Grant Major as our production designer. He won once before for Lord of the Rings Return of the King. And our set decorator is Amber Richards. This is her first nomination. I was so pleasantly surprised to see this nomination. I think when it didn't show up at the guilds, we were fairly uncertain that it would show up here. Neither of us predicted it. Again, I'm not saying anything new here when I say this is my favorite movie of the year, so of course I love the production design, but I really love how you have these wide open spaces and then this house that's almost just plopped down right in the middle of it. And when you're out in the open, you get this sense of agoraphobia when you're inside this house. You get such a deep understanding of who the Burbanks are as a family, but also this like deep claustrophobic internal world. So mm-hmm. I love the production design here. What do you think of the production design for The Power of the Dog?
1: I was shocked to see it in only because it's very minimalist. There aren't that many sets, but. Mm-hmm. I think what they're accomplishing, though, it makes sense. Grant and Amber, in speaking to Jane and, you know, how they want to create this world, the sets were made to heighten the psychological and emotional tension underneath. And what was also interesting is that Major, coming from Lord of the Rings, he brought back elements of Middle Earth. Mm -hmm. And I think you definitely get that with the exteriors, the mountains that surround this house. My favorite little moment is probably when they're crawling through that little tunnel to mm-hmm. when we get to his like secret hideaway. Uh-huh. So that I can definitely see like this Shire Hobbit nature with all of those branches and this claustrophobic enclosed space, which is definitely how Phil feels mentally like trapped inside himself.
0: Mm uh-huh. hmm. I absolutely love that scene, too, and the way that it's designed. I was really interested to learn that Grant Major, he said that story-wise, the tunnel represents a transition into a different world for Phil. So they really incorporate that into the design. You see him move from one world to the next. And I love how they bring back these trees into it, because trees, of course like, feel very mystical, feel very magical in how you're thinking about nature. And that, of course, and I'll get to this when we talk about score, but that is the moment where you feel the real Phil when you see him connected to nature. It's deeply beautiful and very sad. And I think that it also shows, like, the level of control that she has as a filmmaker here to, like, work with her team in such a level to make everything ultimately About the characters, and that's why I think this movie is just so successful. I was also going to say that was my favorite, but since you did, (laughs) I will pick a different one. Um, I think we have to talk about the house. I think that Mm -hmm. the house that belongs to this family is so interesting. It's based on Teddy Roosevelt's Sagamore Hill house, and it's so brown. Like everything about it is just this deep, dark brown. You have a lot of leather, a lot of dark wood. Um, It really evokes a mood. And I think that that is, again, one of my favorite elements in the movie is that you're outside, you're in these big, bright, wide open spaces. We're Mm -hmm. rarely outside at nighttime, with the exception of at the very beginning. So when you go into that house, it almost always feels like It's nighttime where there's this sense of darkness there for the characters. And I love that, that the house is almost like another character. It's like a symbol of how what you project to the outside world isn't always what's going on on the inside. And I think that this house very clearly represents Phil. And then later, you know, Rose, the house also shows how trapped she is. Again, I also love all the little details here with set decoration, Another campion piano. I love the detail Mm -hmm. of, and I talked about this on our episode for the power of the dog, but I love the detail of how in the bedroom we have twin beds for Phil and George. That feels just so bizarre, right? That these two adult brothers are sharing a bedroom in this gorgeous big old house. But Mm. I love that, that level of detail there I think makes this really stunning work and a very deserved nomination.
1: So next up we have the tragedy of Macbeth Stephen Deschamps is the production designer. This is his first nomination. And then Nancy High is the set decorator. She's won twice before for Bugsy and Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. It's a lot of your favorite worlds colliding. Oh
0: my god, I know, right? I love Once Upon a Time in Hollywood.
1: <laughs> we talked a little bit about the production design in this movie on our episode. So check that out. What was your favorite set, favorite part from The Tragedy of Macbeth?
0: one thing that I talked about on our episode that I really loved on rewatch was just how angles were used, how the architecture of the space really highlights different angles. Sometimes we're in like very, very angular rooms. Other times we're in almost circular spaces. We have a lot of archways that we're working with and none of the architecture is associated with a particular period. They're all a little bit conflicting and that's something I really like. I think that Joel Cohen and the production design team here felt really beholden to the text, which I think you always should do when you're working on Shakespeare. But even more so than that, I think what was really cool was that Cohen specifically wanted not a castle, but the idea of a castle. Like, that's just very profound to me, I think, when you're thinking about this movie and how it was really abstracted. And Deshant also said that he had 10 weeks to design and build 33 sets, which to me sounds like an incredibly heavy load wow. of work mm-hmm. to like get all of that done. Um, he worked a lot with Bruno Delbanel as well, the cinematographer, um, doing a lot of sketching out these sets and working with 3D modeling software to build them. Then his set designers could build the model very quickly based on that. Hmm, I would say my favorite set is and this is part visual effect as well but when we are in the room with denzel after macbeth has become king and the doors burst open and all these leaves come flying in and we have that throne room and i think just the combination of visual effect and production design there works really well to see kind of what's going on in macbeth's mind Um, but also in this really unique castle space. What about you?
1: There are two shots that are constantly going through my brain whenever I think of this movie. And the one I mentioned on our episode when Banquo is going through these pillars after he's given this soliloquy. Mm -hmm. Beautiful, very abstract. I love the German expressionism of it all. And the other one would be when Macbeth is speaking to the witches, trying to figure out more about this prophecy. And Catherine Hunter, plural, they're sitting on these square rafters. And it's just a beautiful shot. It feels kind of contorted or like out of place, but it's also so beautiful.
0: And we have to say that next up for Stefan Deschamps is the Robert Zemeckis Pinocchio, because we will never escape oh. Pinocchio. <laughs>
1: 2023 Oscars. Oscar nominated Pinocchio again.
0: <laughs> so our last nominee here, we have West Side Story. The team here, we have Adam Stockhausen as our production designer. He has won previous win for the Grand Budapest Hotel. And our set decorator is Rina D'Angelo. And this is her second nomination. And Rina D'Angelo was at our screening of West Side Story and talked A little bit about this movie and designing it and decorating these sets so that was a really cool experience i really loved hearing from her about the little details in this movie like the real candy bars that they used and they apparently tasted horribly like they were so (laughs) bad (laughs) what i really like about the production design of west side story is you have this very gray gritty new york that clearly belongs to the Jets in those scenes, especially how it opens up. And then you have this like bright, colorful, beautiful world that belongs to Maria and Anita. And specifically, I would say the Puerto Rican women who are associated with the sharks. So I like the contrast there. Um, but what did you think about the production design for West Side Story?
1: I liked seeing it shot in New York. That was really important for the team as well in achieving that realism i think starting out with that demolition scene and this wrecking ball was fascinating adam stockhausen has talked about that too and like being a metaphorical wrecking ball to this area of the west side and what they were doing and forcing these people out but i think my favorite that was also one of my favorite moments was hearing rena talk about the drugstore and how everything was real there were just so many details that they put into it. And that's something you kind of take for granted when you're watching the movie. It's like, Mm -hmm. it looks real great, but there were so many individual pieces there. Um, So that was really fascinating.
0: And they also mentioned this in an interview with the New York Times with Adam Stockhausen, that the dance sequence in particular for America, that was shot... On several locations in Queens in Patterson but a lot of the store facades were actually created physically created like they weren't mm-hmm. all digital so mm-hmm. I think a lot of times when we're watching movies like that we expect like a ton of visual effect happening but they actually built up these store facades which I thought was really cool um I also learned through architectural digest which i thought was neat about gimbals where maria works and where we get the i feel pretty scene Mm -hmm. stockhausen his mom worked at gimbals when he was growing up and he based um, some of the design on what he remembered there and i thought that that was a really beautiful set as well i really liked that i think Mm -hmm. that actually might be my favorite it's not my favorite song in west side story the moment is just tragic when they're singing that song. But I really did love that set.
1: My other favorite set is when they're on the pier Mm
0: -hmm.
1: and Tony and Riff are singing. I think just the way they move about that space and how it was created was an interesting reimagination. But also another one I liked hearing Adam talk about was the school dance when they're in this gym. He really wanted to find a gym that like was also a basketball court and was used as a cafeteria like that's very mm-hmm. much a high school space and he wanted it to be period he loved that the gym they found it was like the basketball hoops that you crank up and down
0: <laughs> oh my god wow I just had a, an intense memory of that <laughs> that you actually used to do that oh my goodness
1: yeah wow so I think that space too that whole scene in general like the costumes the dancing choreography cinematography everything there I really liked so
2: mm-hmm.
1: hearing him talk about that space is like oh yeah that obviously it works and it's partly due to that reason
0: mm-hmm. yeah I love that you can tell that that's a real gym like you don't even think twice about it when you're watching it <laughs> you're like this is the perfect place for the scene
1: mm-hmm. so what would your write-in vote be
0: So my write-in vote would actually be for another Adam Stockhausen movie. It would be for The French Dispatch, which I think has just a ton of detail in it. Mm
1: -hmm. There's so
0: much going on, which usually I would say no to, but I think in this category it really, really works. And there's just such a meticulous level of detail in the design here. And in each story in this anthology... They're completely different worlds, but very signature Wes Anderson. So I would vote for the mm-hmm. French Dispatch.
1: I would go as far to say that the French Dispatch would be my right in vote and should win.
0: Yeah, me too. Same.
1: <laughs> Who could actually win that I think should win. It might be shocking, but I might give Nightmare Alley the slight edge over Dune here.
0: And I would give Nightmare Alley the edge over the tragedy of Macbeth and the power of the dog which like those are my <laughs> two of my movies. But yeah, I mean, I feel like Nightmare Alley, I really love the worlds.
1: And who do you think will win?
0: I actually think Nightmare Alley will win. I just like kind of feel it like it has potential in these yeah. craft categories. And I think when you look at that movie, it's really hard to deny when you see the level of color and detail and especially the differences in those worlds between the carnival and between the architecture. Um, people Mm -hmm. love Art Deco too it's just gorgeous so I feel like people will vote for it and it got that surprise best picture nomination so I think that shows support
1: that's exactly what I was gonna say is that I think it's showing up in picture means it has more potential in some of these technical categories it's tough to say right now I would say Dune or Nightmare Alley if we look back to last year mank won at both the adg and the sdsa and mank went on to win at the oscars so we can wait the next couple weeks and see if nightmare alley wins at those guilds maybe you know that is going to be our front runner yeah next up we'll talk about original score the nominees here are don't look up dune Encanto, kanto parallel mothers and the power of the dog
0: And for Guild here, we have the Society of Composers and Lyricists. They will be announcing their winners on March 8th. We also have some precursors that pop up for this category. So far, Zimmer has the most wins for the Dune score, including the Golden Globe.
1: So first up, we have Don't Look Up, which is composed by Nicholas Bertel. This is his third nomination after Moonlight and If Beale Street Could Talk. He's worked with McKay before on The Big Short, Vice and Succession. I think that's his best work, mm. um, apart from his Barry Jenkins collaborations. But what do you think of the score?
0: Yeah, I was gonna say I. Oh my god! I mean, I love Nicholas Bertel. I think that he's definitely part of this like new guard of composers in Hollywood, and I absolutely love the score for If Beale Street Could Talk. I'm obsessed with it. If you ever mm. need a good cry, put on that score. It's beautiful. Um, Moonlight as well. I feel like I prefer his work with Barry Jenkins, possibly because I prefer the films of Barry Jenkins. Yeah. But I mean, the succession <laughs> theme, it's a bop. I mean, that is just like, mm-hmm. it's great. But I actually like the score here for Don't Look Up. Um, I listened to it this week when I was working, um, just like put it on in the background. And I think that Brutel does... A really good job of tackling the wild tonal shifts in this movie kind of balancing out these different elements mm-hmm. moving through the tones right going from comedy to this impending doom that we have i thought that was really cool and i think that he did a really good job i also want to point out he did co-write the music for the songs just look up and second nature which is the bonnie vera track um at the end So his stamp is all over the music for this film, which I think besides Jennifer Lawrence is the part of the movie that I liked the most.
1: I agree with that. I think the score is a great juxtaposition and keeps things light. I mean, the movie itself is this searing satire, dark comedy of climate change and the music just doesn't let it get dragged down too much. It's very light, poppy,
0: There's also, like, some big band stuff going on in this score that I really like that I think is cool. I also thought it was really funny that he made the commercial music in the movie. So all of the ringtones, anything that is, like, incorporated with, like, the talk shows or the presentations, that's also all Bertel. So very different from, like, your traditional film score I think you would get here. And I think as far as this score goes, we've talked a lot in the past about how, like, sometimes we will... Work to scores, or you know, in college, we used to study to certain movie scores. Like, do you think this is one that you're going to come back to? And if it is, like, do you have a favorite track from it? It's okay if you say no.
1: I think once I get over the fact that Don't Look Up has four nominations, Mm -hmm. maybe I'll return to this. But I haven't listened to the entire score since I saw the movie. Do you have any favorite tracks? What do you think about revisiting this?
0: It's hard because I'm really not a fan of the movie. I don't see myself necessarily like returning to this and playing it through like I do with a lot of Britell scores. I think if I had to recommend a track, I would pick Thanksgiving, Overture to Logic and Knowledge. That's a good representation, I think, for this score and one that I would recommend. I do think if you're going to listen to a Britell score, I would do Moonlight and If Beale Street Could Talk before I would do mm-hmm. this one.
1: Is Thanksgiving, is that the dinner scene towards Mm -hmm. the end? Yeah, it is. I do remember that being a great song, yeah.
0: Next up, we have Dune. This score was composed by Hans Zimmer. He has one win for The Lion King, which was forever ago, which is crazy. I feel like he's always a name that we think of when we think of film scores and someone who I would guess would have more than one win. But yeah, he just has his win for The Lion King. We've talked extensively about this score um, on our Dune episode, but I think a cool thing that's happening is that Hans Zimmer has been involved in a lot of Dune press and Dune Q&As. So like when I saw it at New York Film Festival, Hans Zimmer was there with Denis Villeneuve promoting the film and talking about the score. When I saw the first 10 minutes in IMAX, one of the features at the beginning was we actually had Hans Zimmer not in person, but in this like featurette, talking about the score. So I think this is definitely an element of the film that people are talking about, that people single out as their favorite. So what did you think about the score for Dune?
1: Again, this is something we really dive into on our episode. I loved that he created new instruments, because in this futuristic world, they wouldn't have the same instruments as we do now on Earth. So I think his invention in creating these new sounds and making it feel very operatic at times, but keeping that core Zimmer sound was phenomenal. I've returned to this already multiple times. I mean, Zimmer himself is a composing icon. So besides The Lion King, which he won for, this is his 11th of their nomination. So I'm hoping it brings him home a second win.
0: I said this on our Dune episode, and I will say it again. I think that if Hans Zimmer does not win for this, he is not winning another Oscar, maybe in his lifetime.
1: (laughs) Ever again.
0: (laughs) This song, Dream of Arrakis, that we start on, if you listen to the album straight through, which I've done, it reminds me so much of the main title from The Shining, especially, (laughs) like, there's a part at the end, so much so that I wonder if he was inspired by it or even sampled some of it. Like, it is very, very close to that. And it's interesting because Kubrick, 2001 A Space Odyssey is such a blueprint for modern sci-fi. So I could Mm -hmm. definitely see Zimmer looking to Kubrick films for inspiration, but I wouldn't necessarily pick The Shining. I will post on like Twitter or Instagram what I'm talking about to see if people think this sounds similar at all. Again, I'm not a musician, but it's just something... It it sounded very similar, so I was curious mm-hmm. about that. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, I think we ta- one thing that we talked about is that that creation of those instruments. And we don't have an orchestra here in this movie, in the score. And I think that you can tell that. It sounds very alien. It sounds very different. Also, another thing that Zimmer talks about a lot is that it is grounded in female voices like he liked to bring those into it because the women in Dune are essential to the story the Bene Gesserit Chani Mm -hmm. and I think that you can really see that in the score
1: so my track that I always play first when I come back to the score is Armada do you Mm -hmm. have any favorite tracks or have you revisited the score
0: um I did this week for pod prep but it's not one that I go to. It's I think because it's very intense and very loud and it's just like a very particular (laughs) mood. It's not a calm down score which is usually what I look for when I'm looking at movie scores but I do like Armada. I also like Bene Gesserit. That's a very creepy one so I would say those two.
1: Also, like tenant, this is, yes, a chaotic score, like oh my very God, but I high love, strung.
0: But I love the tenant score. <laughs> <laughs> I will say that. That one I actually think I prefer, which might be crazy to say, but that one I return to.
1: Those are the two that I will like put on when I'm riding my bike through the city, and I have.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that makes me nervous. Like on a city bike? <laughs> like the, those yeah. big, heavy bikes?
1: Oh, it's a great time. Yeah. Oh, my God.
0: <laughs> Rainy night in Tallinn.
1: so next up we have Encanto composed by Jermaine Franco and this is her first nomination and the first woman to score a Disney animated feature film so that's very exciting Mm
0: -hmm. I can't believe she's the first when I read that I was like oh my god it took until now but I feel like composing is a very male dominated space Mm -hmm. um Hilda Guadagnatour she won for Joker a few years ago but Besides her, we don't really get a lot of women nominated here.
1: So how do you feel about the Encanto score?
0: So I'll say that the Encanto score isn't one that I return to, and that's primarily because it is mixed with the soundtrack. I will say, though, when I first saw Encanto, I don't know what was going on. I was like, these songs aren't catchy at all. I'm never going... Like, these are not going to get stuck in my head. And now oh my god, if I hear it anywhere or like on TV, it instantly gets stuck in my head. We'll talk about that, I think, with the original song. Um, but I was very excited to see Germaine Franco nominated here. She's Mexican-American. And in interview, she talks about something called the Cumbia. She says that the Cumbia is a gift from Colombia to all of the Latin American countries. And every Latin American country has its own version. So she started there. That was kind of her base. And then she started researching different instruments looking at scores and she was listening from she said everything from classical to pop afro-columbian choral music and she also what i thought was cool is she looked at those old disney movies like beauty and the beast even like really the classic disney that we grew up with to Mm -hmm. inform her decision making for this score and she looked to those in particular for the scarier moments in the film because You obviously don't want to scare kids too much when you're making (laughs) these Disney movies like with your music, but do you have a favorite track from this or have you found yourself like returning to the score or listening to any of the songs? I know we shared similar opinions on our Encanto episode.
1: Yeah, I just left feeling so indifferent by this movie. I don't really understand all of the hype it's been having and like this resurgence on TikTok and Twitter. Mm-hmm. I haven't revisited the score.
0: I would listen to Mirabelle's Cumbia, that track, because that I think is Jermaine Franco's inspiration here. I think that's a good track to like represent her score and the work that she did on the movie.
1: But it is a lighthearted score. I think it meshes well with what Disney goes for. You kind of talked about that a little bit and not being too scary, but it is something easy to put on in the background.
0: Next up, we have Parallel Mothers. The score here was by Alberto Iglesias. This is his fourth nomination. He was nominated previously for The Constant Gardener, The Kite Runner, and Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy. We haven't talked about Parallel Mothers really on our show yet this year. I was happy to see this here, um, Alberto Iglesias has been working with Almodovar for 25 years, so he's I think his like long-standing collaborator, and I really liked the score. It was something that I did pick up on when I was watching the movie as um, one of my favorite components for sure. What did you think of the score here?
1: The score fits really well with Almodovar's worlds. You know, it's very melodramatic. It's subtle, mm-hmm. but it's playful. So I think it getting so much critical attention and doing well throughout this award season has been pretty exciting and you know it's nice to see that i think in terms of listening to this over and over it's kind of an oddball to just put on just because of that world that almodovar lives in
0: I actually really like this score. I think this is, after listening to it in preparation for this, I think this is going to be one that I return to. I really like that Iglesias said that he wanted the score to have a thriller aspect to it. Um, He mentioned this in an interview with The Hollywood Reporter. But again, like you mentioned, we have parts of this movie that feel like this strong Almodovar melodrama. And I think that this score and the partnership between him and Iglesias, like you can really see that here. But yeah, I really like this score. Um, and I think it it works as an extension of Penelope Cruz's character in the movie. So I don't have a particular track to recommend, but I would recommend listening to the entire score. It's a, it's a nice listen.
1: And our last nominee is The Power of the Dog. Composer here, Johnny Greenwood. He was previously nominated for Phantom Thread.
0: And should have won. <laughs>
1: I was a little surprised we didn't get a double Johnny Greenwood nomination this year with Spencer, but were you happy that The Power of the Dog showed up for him instead of Spencer?
0: Oh, of course. Yes, I was very happy about that. I don't love the Spencer score. Um, I think if you're going to listen to a particular track from that score, I have listened to Crucifix over. I really like that one, but I think that The Power of the Dog is his stronger score this year. I mean, the second this score started in the movie, I was hooked. I was like, okay, like we are going to, this is a dark tale that we're about to get. And you can feel that the mood is so strong in his scores. And I love how he uses individual instruments here. And he and Jane Campion, I think, work so well together. She asked him to score this movie very far in advance. So he had a lot of time to work on this. And they have a great video together. It's called Jane Campion and Johnny Greenwood Anatomy of a Score. It's through Netflix. If you like the score of this movie, I highly recommend like watching this video and um, listening to them talk about their working relationship. One thing that they mentioned is that they both think it's crazy that sometimes directors will use temp scores. So if their composer is like, working on the score, they'll edit to like a temp score, not the score for the film. Yeah. Because for both of them score is so important and it really informs Mm -hmm. like your decisions for characters and for editing and I think you can really really see that here and how the instruments are used and in this movie we're getting diegetic and non-diegetic sound um, but the instruments are used by the characters on screen we have the piano for Kirsten Dunst we have the banjo for Benedict Cumberbatch and Phil so I really like how those instruments are incorporated into the score
1: I think out of all of the scores here, this is the most brooding. It's super unsettling to listen to just because you can feel that tension. And I think it really works well. Jane just did amazing work in coordinating all of these departments together. And I think the score does an amazing job of making you feel that Mm -hmm. throughout.
0: Can I ramble for a little bit about this score? (laughs) (laughs) So I think we have to talk about the piano here because the piano is such a key motif for Jane Campion. And Johnny Greenwood talks about how the piano, it's symbolic for Rose. And it almost, Campion says, feels like a haunted version of Rose. I thought that was really beautiful. And Greenwood felt like he was pushing it towards like being almost inhuman how it sounds. And it becomes this theme for rose and her confusion and her drunkenness and Mm -hmm. i think again in a similar way to the production design here everything is an extension of the characters and the score here like each person in this movie almost has their own theme that you hear like when you're learning about the characters i love the banjo obviously but johnny greenwood didn't use an actual banjo for that sound Instead, he wanted to look at a darker side of the instrument that would mirror Phil's personality. So he actually played a cello like a banjo. And that's what you hear Hmm. um, there, which I think is really cool. So it gives you this sense of confusion when you're hearing the instruments. And Mm -hmm. that's also something you think of when you think of Phil, right? It's it's something in someone you don't understand. I also love the French horn that they use. That's probably my favorite when I first heard that in the movie. That's when I knew that Cody Smith McPhee was going to be a little demon because of the way that this French horn is used. It feels like so right for building this tension that you feel. The mood, how ominous it is. The French horn, the sound is also very masculine, but has this sadness to it, which is a good comparison point between Phil and Peter and how similar they are as characters um, and how their journeys sort of mirror or parallel each other. One beautiful thing I thought that Jane said about the horns was that she thought they sounded like whales calling out to each other. So it's connected to nature again, um, Hmm. but I I really love that. She's just the best.
1: So what's your favorite track? Because I know you have one.
0: I have a couple that I will share (laughs) for anyone who wants to return to this. So 25 Years is the track that it opens on. This one is gorgeous, definitely but my favorites are actually they were mine and Psalm 22, which are both near the end of the film. Those are the ones I would recommend. Have you returned to the score?
1: I don't listen to scores as much as I used to. Mm-hmm. I guess I could like play it on the train when I'm commuting, but
0: but you have to watch Spencer on your commute.
1: <laughs> so update with that. I've downloaded it twice and Hulu just deleted my download and I'm like, well, I guess it's fate it's not meant to be watched
0: (laughs) wait so you just didn't watch the whole movie you've only watched part of it
1: so i'm like 40 minutes in maybe yeah trying to read download a third time but with the power of the dog i've turned some of it on before just to play but i feel like it's for a specific mood like it fits in the movie but it's kind of like i'm not gonna walk to this
0: Mm, i can see that
1: but i like you know you talking about all the details and the instruments i think it's very complex. It's a very well-done score. So
0: what would your write-in vote be?
1: Mine would be, apart from the short list where I kind of wish The Green Knight got in, I would say Come On, Come On, which I'm just trying to advocate for this movie since it got zero nominations. (laughs) But I think it's a lighthearted score that is really easy to put on in the background and works really well in the movie, too. It's not like a main element, but I think when you listen to it on its own, it is really beautiful. What would yours be?
0: Mine would be Dan Romer's score for Luca. So I'm picking another animated movie here. I love this score. It's so fun. It's beautiful. I also love Luca. It's my favorite nominee in mm-hmm. the animated feature category.
1: Yeah. Rewatching Luca and hearing the score, it's like horrible that this wasn't nominated. Mm-hmm. And who do you think should win?
0: I think, hands down, I'm really sorry to do this. Johnny Greenwood should absolutely win for The Power of the Dog. This score is gorgeous. He needs a win. He deserves one. He should have won for Phantom Thread. But this score, it just sticks with you. Like, the way it's used is just perfection. These instruments being extensions of these characters.
1: I think he totally deserves an Oscar. Someday it'll happen, but I think Dune should win. It's no surprise that we're each advocating for our favorite movies of the year here.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And who do you think will win?
1: I think it'll be Zimmer for Dune.
0: Yeah, I think you're right. Next up we have Best Original Song. Our nominees are Be Alive from King Richard, Dos Origitas from Encanto, Down to Joy from Belfast, No Time to Die from No Time to Die, and Somehow You Do from Four Good Days.
1: And then with guilds here, it's the same as score. So the Society of Composers and Lyricists, which again, March 8th.
0: So our first nominee here is Be Alive from King Richard. And we have two credits on this. It is Dixon's first nomination and also a first nomination for Beyonce Knowles-Carter. I love that her full name is listed on the credit not just Beyonce, <laughs> but we'll probably just be saying Beyonce all year. The way that this song is used, it's an end credit song. So we often, I think in this category, do have end credits songs listed. Last year, our winner was kind of a surprise. We had her winning for her song Fight for You from Judas and the Black Messiah. The only precursor we have here really so far, Billie Eilish won the Golden Globe for No Time to Die.
1: And the Grammy. And the
0: Grammy. <laughs> My God, I forgot she won a Grammy. I forgot that yeah. it already happened. <laughs> oh my God! <laughs> I personally thought that this was a really good end credit song, Be Alive because the way that it's used, I think it's this like really powerful feeling anthem from Beyonce. Her vocals are incredible, of course, like they always are, um, but we're hearing this song as we see some footage of Venus and Serena, and we're getting these oftentimes what we do at the end of like sports films, you get that additional footage. And I think that the song works really well, especially after like the journey that you've been going on with these characters, um, Venus and Serena, throughout the movie. What did you think of the song?
1: I liked it as well. I think it's a really hopeful, uplifting way to end this movie over that montage. And it was just driving home everything that the movie was trying to say. I think it's a catchy song. It worked really well. And I think if Beyonce goes to the Oscars, which, should we talk about that? <laughs> LOL. Um, I think it's great that she's finally an Oscar nominee.
0: And with Beyonce, I think like a big thing here, if she does go to the Oscars, um, having a big star like that performing, that's definitely a draw yeah. to audiences. Mm-hmm. I do wonder this year if they will like last year, put the original song performances ahead of the show. But I feel like because it's at the Dolby again, they'll be built into the telecast.
1: I kind of liked the performances last year, but I think it'll be nice to have them built into the ceremony again. Mm -hmm. So I hope they are. Next up, we have Dos Oroguitas from Encanto. This is written by Lin-Manuel Miranda, his second nomination, previously nominated for the Moana song, How Far I'll Go. So this is our only song out of these five nominees that's used in the film, and it's at the climactic moment when the abuela is confronting Mirabelle. Do I think that'll help it in winning? I don't think so. We really wanted Husavik last year to win because that was the only song used in the film, but didn't matter. I don't think it's really going to affect its chances here. They were going to submit Columbia Mia Moore previously, and they switched. So how do you feel about other songs from this movie?
0: Disney made a huge mistake. They are very lucky that Dos Orugitas got a nomination because they should have submitted We Don't Talk About Bruno. I think they would win if they submitted We Don't Talk About Bruno. Because this song, which I don't, Again, quite understand this, but more power to the people who like it. This is the only Disney song of the 21st century to reach number 1 on the Billboard Hot 100. What? It is a sensation.
1: Yeah, I don't I don't get it. I even let it go? Yes. That wasn't? Yes. Oh my gosh. Crazy.
0: Yeah, it's the first number one song of Lin-Manuel Miranda's career. It's a major like mega Whoa, hit what? Disney song. Yes. That... And like across um... the world. Like, it was number one on the global Billboard 200, Mm -hmm. big UK single. Like, I don't don't understand, but it's a huge hit, and Disney picked the wrong song.
1: Like, out of all of the songs from this movie, even Surface Pressure has had this resurgence. (laughs) (laughs) It's just, I want to know their mindset of changing songs all around and why they landed here. This was also before... We don't talk about Bruno got huge on social media.
0: So I don't know. I mean, it's just bad luck, I guess. Mm -hmm. Next up, we have Down to Joy from Belfast. This is Van Morrison's first nomination. And Van Morrison, noted anti-vaxxer, can go to the Oscars this year, unfortunately, because they have decided that you don't need to be vaccinated to go to the ceremony. Uh, That's that's what we'll say about that right now until we have more information. (laughs) But van morrison congratulations you get to go i guess for your opening credits intro song over the colorful modern day belfast customs at the airport presentation
1: oh my god yeah um
0: we said we weren't going to review these movies but the songs the songs in belfast just don't work for me and down to joy is no exception
1: yeah i'm not surprised at this nomination but I'm not here for it.
0: This reminds me a lot of Hear My Voice from The Trial of the Chicago 7 getting in last year. Like, it just feels kind of like the best Mm -hmm. picture nominee along for the ride contender. Did you like how the music was used in the movie or specifically this song?
1: I think starting the movie out this way with this song is very feel-good. It really does put you in the mindset of what you're going to experience over the next 90 minutes.
0: Yeah, I agree. I do think this does like kick off the tone for the rest of the movie. And I can see why this was their submission and why they picked it.
1: So next up, we have No Time to Die from No Time to Die. It was sung by Billie Eilish and written by her and her brother, Phineas O'Connell. And these are both of their first nominations. So like every other Bond song that we get, it takes place in the opening credits, which I think were fantastic. And hopefully this will round out Daniel Craig's existence as Bond with another win. The other two being with Spectre with Writings on the Wall sung by Sam Smith and Skyfall in Skyfall sung by Adele.
0: And it's funny because like there have been a few more Bond songs that have been nominated a long time ago without wins. So we've had The Look of Love from Casino Royale, Live and Let Die, from Live and Let Die, Nobody Does It Better, from The Spy Who Loved Me, and For Your Eyes Only, from For Your Eyes Only. There are some good Bond songs I think that should have won. But Mm
2: -hmm. yeah,
0: I think notably like the record we've got on here, especially with Writings on the Wall, that beating Diane Warren and Lady Gaga that year for Till It Happens to You, that was a big shocker I remember. So Mm -hmm. I feel like we can almost at this point count on Bond songs doing well at the Oscars, and Billie Eilish is an awards magnet. Like you said at the (laughs) beginning, she has already won a Grammy for this song. But did you like this song and how it was used in the movie?
1: Also, I will say Die Another Day, sung by Madonna, should have been a nominee. Agree. (laughs) That's another iconic Bond song.
0: Good inclusion. I did like...
1: (laughs) I was actually really surprised by it because I don't think I had listened to it before... I saw the movie. I really tried to hold off. But it's very moody, very Billie Eilish. And I think that really is like, when you think of Bond songs, Billie embodies that very much so.
0: Yeah, I really like her. And I think that, yeah, her voice really suits like the end of this Daniel Craig era very well. Like this movie is very moody and emotional. And that's how her voice is and how her music is. So I feel like she and her brother Phineas... I mean, they obviously have a great creative partnership. So I think they did a good job with this song. And our last nominee, we have Somehow You Do from Four Good Days. This is Diane Warren's 13th Oscar nomination. And we'll have a little Diane Warren game at the end of this. But lucky 13 for Diane. (laughs) (laughs) So this is an end credit song. First, did you watch Four Good Days?
1: I watched Four Good Days. And it is... Not the worst nominated movie we have this year.
0: I completely agree with that.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I was actually like really surprised. Not that I loved it, but I think Glenn just did the most. She was so good.
0: I agree. I thought Glenn was great. I was expecting this movie to be really bad, but I do think she and Mila Kunis actually have really good on screen chemistry as mother and daughter like you really mm-hmm. believe everything that they're going through I thought Glenn was great the wigs in this movie are absolutely insane <laughs> so this is an end credit song which is what we usually get Reba McIntyre singing it is it my favorite nominee <laughs> here no but no I no. am happy to see Diane get another nomination
2: mm-hmm.
1: yeah the song just doesn't do anything for me but maybe it's because I'm not like really into country. Listening to the song though, after seeing the movie, it made more sense. Mm-hmm. I think it's very fitting as a movie about drug addiction and what it does to this family. The song does a good job of summing that up. So it's not exactly like a happy way to end the movie, but I think the movie itself is healing in a way. It's very depressing. Like I, I tried not to cry watching this on the train. Yeah.
0: So we're going to go through all of Diane Warren's Oscar nominations and pick some (laughs) of our favorites or ones that we would recommend. So she has Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now with Albert Hammond from Mannequin, Because You Loved Me from Up Close and Personal, How Do I Live from Con Air, I Don't Want to Miss a Thing from Armageddon, Music of My Heart from Music of the Heart, There You'll Be from Pearl Harbor, Grateful from Beyond the Lights, Till It Happens to You with Lady Gaga from The Hunting Ground, Stand Up for Something with Common from Marshall, All Fight from RBG, I'm Standing with You from Breakthrough, EOC or Scene with Laura Pausini from The Life Ahead, and Somehow You Do from Four Good Days. Do you have a couple from this list that you like or that you would recommend?
1: I loved Pearl Harbor as a kid or as a teenager. I don't know why. (laughs) Right? So I would have to say that she should have won for There You'll Be. Because that year, if I didn't have you won from Monsters Inc.,
0: typical like Disney song. Yeah.
1: No. I listened to this. I was like, why did this happen? And then obviously I don't want to miss a thing is just iconic. I had no idea that was her. Mm Mm-hmm. And I would probably give another one for Till It Happens to You with Lady Gaga. I think that year, Writings on the Wall 1, Skyfall is the best Bond song. So I would have given it to her here over the Sam Smith song.
0: So Nothing's Gonna Stop Us Now, also iconic. Heard it in Trader Joe's today while I was checking out. (laughs) (laughs) But that lost to I've Had the Time of My Life from Dirty Dancing, so I get that.
1: Some of her wins are just... It's just bad timing. Mm-hmm. Like, there's some really good wins, and it's like, uh, oh, fine, I guess. It just... It hurts to see that 13.
0: I know. I mean, there there are so many good ones here, really, just because they're just such a product of the time, particularly the 90s. Like, How Do I Live from Con Air? <laughs> Hilarious that <laughs> that's her and that it was nominated. But that loss to My Heart Will Go On from Titanic.
2: Yeah. Again,
0: it's like, we know. Um, But I feel like if I could give her one where it makes sense, it would have to be Till It Happens to You. Mm -hmm. It would have given Lady Gaga another win, Writings on the Wall. I don't love that song or understand that win, so I feel like I would give her that one. But I don't want to miss a thing. I mean, that's... I always forget that she wrote that um, because that song, it's still, still everywhere. So... Mm -hmm. And that lost to When You Believe from The Prince of Egypt... I would have given her the win there, even though I did love The Prince of Egypt as a kid.
1: I was going to say, that whole soundtrack deserved a win, so Mm I was like, I get that.
0: Yeah. Do you think Diane Warren will win this year?
1: I think we'll be hoping for number 14 to be (laughs) her win.
0: (laughs) I think so, too.
1: I'll say that. (laughs) So what would your write-in vote be?
0: My write-in vote, you know, our day of recording, Super Bowl Sunday, I have to celebrate... (laughs) The Hero of This Day, Baby Annette. I would pick So May We Start from Annette as the eligible song, but there are so many songs from this movie that I would pick. But I would just, mm-hmm. I'll stick with the one that they submitted, which is So May We Start. They really missed out here. I'm mad that it wasn't nominated. I would have been really excited for this category for once. Um, but yeah, <laughs> we should have nominated the Sparks Brothers and opened the show with this song easily.
1: Yeah, that's a great pick. I am going with On My Way from The Mitchells vs. The Machines, a great little pop song, cute little movie. I actually listened to this quite a bit. And after I'd seen the movie, it was like on repeat.
0: Learning and relearning your music taste is always a fun journey for me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Love to throw some curveballs in there. Yes.
0: <laughs> and who do you think should win?
1: I think Billie Eilish should win for No Time to Die.
0: I agree. Can't
1: believe I'm saying that after like two years of waiting for this movie. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I know. We knew. We did know. I We've been waiting for it for so long. I agree with you. I think she deserves it.
1: And who do you think will win?
0: I think she's going to win. I think the recent track record with Bond songs at the Oscars, like, and her already having a Grammy for this song and how well she does at the Grammys, it makes sense. I think especially because what we missed last year, I predicted... Leslie Odom Jr. winning for Speak Now from One Night in Miami, but her previous Grammy winner, she was right there waiting in the wings. So I feel Mm -hmm. like that I'm going to follow that this time. I think you could say Beyonce maybe because King Richard did really well that day, but I'm going to stick with Billie Eilish for now.
1: Yeah, I agree. I think it's going to be another Bond song. So that's our first Oscar contender episode. A few technical categories. We'll be back in a few weeks with our technical episode part two. Like we mentioned throughout, keep an eye in the guild, see if any of these change. Over the next few weeks, we still have quite some time before the Oscars, so a lot can happen.
0: And next time on Oscar Wilde, in our next episode in our contender series, we will be talking about three categories, documentary feature, animated feature, and international feature. Very excited for these. I think we do have to be transparent and share why we're pushing our technical categories episode, which is because Cyrano was nominated for costume design, and we haven't seen Cyrano. So we have to wait for that one. But that's okay. I'm very excited to talk about these contenders next week.
1: And our nominees here for documentary feature, we have Ascension, Attica, Flea, Summer of Soul, or When the Revolution Could Not Be Televised, and Writing with Fire. Our animated feature film nominees are Encanto, Flea, Luca, The Mitchells vs. the Machines, and Raya and the Last Dragon. And for international feature, we have Drive My Car, Flea, The Hand of God, Lunana, A Yak in the Classroom, and The Worst Person in the World.
0: I'm excited to dig into these categories. A lot of Flea, right? It's nominated in all three categories that we'll be mm-hmm. talking about. So we'll talk about, I think its distinguishing factors right in each of those categories and how it plays into the race but yeah thank you all for listening you can find us on twitter and instagram at oscar Pod. if you like our show please rate review and subscribe and we will see you next time
1: thanks everyone